Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we are talking about Plan B, when labor turns into a cesarean with Liz Lansky. Liz, welcome to Healthful Woman. Hi, Nadi. The topic of this podcast is really important. We're trying to get into when and why a woman who's in labor planning a vaginal delivery would then need a cesarean delivery. And can you explain to our listeners, why is this a topic that you wanted to discuss? I feel like many patients are fearful. Obviously, this is an experience that labor is an experience that people, especially going through it for the first time, have never been through before. Many times they've heard stories from friends. Some of those stories are great. Some of those stories are scary. But there's really nothing else quite like it. I think people have been through sporting events like running a marathon or, you know, some extraordinary event like, you know, going to professional school. But this is just so incredibly different. So I think there's a lot of fear about it and fear about the whole experience and how it's going to going to go. Right. And for most women who are in labor, obviously, you know, appropriate candidates for labor, there isn't any reason they shouldn't try to labor because there are some women who we recommend having a cesarean uh, without labor. That's the exception. But for the women who are trying to labor, there's a lot of confusion about how likely is it that she's going to need a cesarean in labor? What are the reasons she might need it? Are they really important? Are they really necessary? It's a complicated topic because there's several reasons why someone might need a cesarean in labor, and each one of them has a lot of room for interpretation many of the times. And so in a broad sense, when someone's in labor, Generally, what happens is they progress, their cervix dilates, the baby descends and comes down, and then they push and the baby comes out and mother's healthy, baby's healthy. But the two things that would make us change that and recommend a cesarean in labor is first, either we're concerned about the baby, that the baby's not tolerating labor so well, and that there's a fear that maybe the labor process will somehow injure the baby, most famously from low oxygen causing some sort of brain injury, but there's other types, but that's the most famous. That's the first reason. And the second reason would be that there's some indication to us that the labor process is not progressing normally to the point that it's becoming dangerous either to the mother or baby. And both of those are not always precise in terms of telling someone exactly when that point happens when we're worried about the baby or exactly when that point happens and labor is going too far. How do you talk to women in labor or before labor about this? Obviously, it's a very difficult conversation. It's a little bit easier when somebody's sitting in front of you and you have their chart, you know their age. I think that there are risk factors for cesarean. I'm hoping someday we figure out a mathematical model that looks at a little bit of family history, because I think there's subgroups of people who their sister, their mom, everybody's been a cesarean. Sometimes those folks have intrinsic pelvic issues that it's very high likelihood they would have a cesarean. But there are other things that are a little bit more not modifiable. And there are studies that very clearly are out there. 
that the older somebody is, the greater their likelihood is that they will have a cesarean. And that's something that women should talk to their doctors about. But I also think that starting BMI, as well as the amount of weight that they gain in pregnancy, also helps to determine their risk for cesarean. There are also many studies that actually show that the heavier somebody is, the greater their likelihood of cesarean. Um, And then the increased weight gain as well. There actually aren't studies about that as best that I know at this point. But I do think that all of them are factors and um, increase a risk of cesarean. So I think the woman who's 45 years old coming in and trying to have her first baby and deliver vaginally, her risk of C-section is relatively high. And I think that women don't get that feedback. I think they're very excited to be pregnant, very excited to be having their first baby. But I'm not sure that we always talk them through that and give them reasonable expectations about that. Those are the factors coming in that are, you could say, modifiable or not modifiable, but those are fixed before you kind of walk through the door in labor and delivery. Right. It's important that that people have expectations of what's going to be and I usually discuss this with women at the beginning of pregnancy. I frequently see women in consultation who are, let's say, over 35, over 40, over 45. And one of the things I discuss with them, like you said, is the risk of cesarean from age. Now, exactly why age is a risk factor for cesarean is complicated. Probably some of it is as women get older, either they or their doctors may be a little bit more conservative, uh, less likely to quote unquote, you know, push it or sort of push the envelope so to speak. But also there's a physiologic reason. The uterus, which has to contract strongly and regularly in labor, it's a muscle. And like all of our muscles, they decline in strength and contractility over time. And so that's probably another factor. You know, with expectations, on the one hand, it's really good to have expectations so people understand. On the other hand, sometimes people feel we're trying to just tell them in advance that I'm going to do a cesarean. And that's really not what it is, because if that's the case, we'll just recommend a cesarean. It's just more so so everyone's on the same page with what to expect in labor. Those are kind of the soft factors kind of walking through the door. I think the rest of it is really what happens the day of that they show up in labor or that they rupture membranes. And those things, it's hard to predict what it will be as people move forward in labor. I feel like we constantly need to be looking at kind of the big picture and the little picture. As you mentioned before, you know, the two things we're most worried about is, is a mom okay? And is a baby okay? We know our fetal monitoring is not totally precise. Many times we see things that we worry about in labor and delivery, like D cells or changes in baseline. And as obstetricians, it worries us. And then ultimately, baby is perfectly fine when we deliver by cesarean. We try to follow people through labor and delivery. We try to watch them carefully. We try to make sure that they continue to progress. You know, we're looking at fetal monitoring. We're looking at cervical progression. We're trying to look at all of those factors and make sure that things continue to go well. And if they're not going well, this is where we, you know, try to talk to patients and say, you know, I'm concerned that things aren't progressing the way that they should. Some of it's modifiable. We can change their position. We can change if we're using Pitocin, we can stop using it or start using it to see if we can help them continue to dilate as we follow them through. We're constantly trying to discuss with women in labor, you know, what we're worried about and how best to proceed. It's tough because if you just 
you know, just taking one of those two reasons, the, the concern over the baby, so the fetal monitoring, it's a complicated science to understand that because everybody who interprets the fetal heart rate monitoring knows very well that the majority of the time, even if the pattern is concerning, the baby is fine and will be fine pretty much no matter what we do. Everyone knows that, and that's called a false positive. So we we tend to be you know patient, and we try to not you know go too crazy over every single change in the in the heart rate pattern. But at a certain point, what is the threshold? At what point do you say, okay, this is concerning enough that I'm going to now say it's not safe to proceed anymore? And there are recommendations out there, and there's various categories one, two, and three, and what you use. But everybody knows that they're also not great because. Even with the worst of the worst fetal heart rate tracings, many of those babies are fine. So if you have that and you recommend a cesarean and the baby is fine, it can either mean you quote unquote save the baby, right? The baby's fine now, but it wouldn't have been later, or the baby would have been fine either way and it's hard to know. And so that's you know a difficult thing to discuss with people. But the problem is the stakes are so high that if you guess wrong and you wait too long, and in fact, the baby does suffer an injury, uh, the fear is that maybe I could have intervened earlier. You know, for people in labor, for anybody in labor or not, who doesn't do this all day, every day, it's hard to sort of put all that together into what is the right thing to do. And obstetricians may disagree about what exactly the right thing to do is. It involves a discussion with people. What is my thought process? And to try to have that continually over the course of labor. But there's another part of it as well, which is dilation, so exam. In the setting where the fetal heart rate tracing is great, we think we have all the time in the world where we can continue to try to progress somebody in labor. But the situation is different when there's no longer cervical progression. And so then we talk about augmenting people, giving them Pitocin to try to move them onward. And sometimes that gives us dips in the heart rate. And so we're kind of caught in a world where we're not making progress. And if we're trying to augment them or push it a little bit to see if we can move people to fully dilated and and delivery, we're not making progress because then we have non-reassuring tracing. And so that would be one reason. It would be failure to progress where we would then move onward and talk about a cesarean. And then other times, some of the stuff that happens in labor and delivery is a fever. And I think that sometimes as women have a fever, I look at that and say that that's a pretty significant event. That sometimes is something that should be looked at as sometimes a reason to kind of rethink the whole process. Potentially, there is risk of harm. And I think that touches on the point you're making about the progress of labor. And one of the things that sometimes people ask me is, well, before there were cesareans, you know, everyone delivered vaginally. And and I agree with that. It is true that if you wait indefinitely in labor, the baby will eventually come out. So it's not that the baby truly doesn't fit, so to speak, in most cases. But the problem is at a certain point when labor becomes very long, we know that there's risks to the mother and to the baby. One of them is infection, that the mom will get an infection, which is not great for her, but also the baby can get an infection, which is worse for the baby. There's a higher risk of hemorrhage, of bleeding heavily after birth. There's a risk to her own organs you know, for later in life in terms of her bladder. And in, in countries that don't have access to cesarean delivery, 
they will labor for multiple days and the babies will come out, but frequently the babies are very ill and then the mothers have long-term problems because of those long labors. And exactly when it flips from safe to continue to no longer safe to continue is a gray zone. And it's not always known exactly when that is. So in general, you you want to be patient with people in labor and try to give them every opportunity to progress and deliver vaginally. But as you said, sometimes things just point that it's not the right thing to do, like a fever or like it's taking a very long time or in addition to the cervix not dilating, the head is still very high in the pelvis or you have other things going on or blood pressure isn't good. There's a lot that goes into that decision and it's it's not a rule like an X amount of time, a bell goes off and if the baby's not a certain place, you have to do a C-section. It's just the longer it goes, the higher the risk and we're trying to balance that risk with the opportunity for a vaginal delivery, which is great and has a lower recovery or shorter recovery. But sometimes if you go too far, you pass a breaking point where it's it's not good for the mother or the baby. It's a conversation with people about, you know, what is the the upsides to waiting and what is the upsides not to waiting. And some women want to have a lot of discussion about it and some just want you to tell them what to do. And I think that over the years there has been a level of mistrust that has gotten put into the picture where sometimes women don't trust the person taking care of them, uh, the obstetrician or the midwife, whoever it might be, in terms of that decision. So I'll sometimes come in and talk to them and say, I'm recommending a cesarean. And obviously people question why or this, but then there's a certain point where like, no, you're doing it because it's easier for you or you make more money or you have a show that you want to go to or you have dinner plans or something like that. And I think that those things do occur. Uh, obviously, I'm not naive. I think that there are situations when doctors have made recommendations for cesareans prematurely and probably inappropriately and either knowingly or unknowingly for not the best intentions. But I don't think that that's what typically happens. I don't think that that's the norm. I think most of the time it's the obstetrician and the midwife just trying to give a woman his or her best impression of what's the safest thing to do moving forwards. I agree. As we talked about a little bit earlier, one of the things I try to remind patients is that we as their docs are basically advisors. I mean, obviously, if we have to do a cesarean or we have to do a vacuum delivery or forceps delivery or some other intervention, we're being the technician as well as the doc. But most of our role is really just to advise people. I think that our role as advisors, if the patient has an issue, I actually have the issue because they have an issue with me. And if I have an issue, unfortunately, because we're partnered and I'm part of this path that they're taking as well, they have an issue. And so we're very much bonded, at least for that period of time that we're caring for somebody that it's in my best interest that they do well. It's in my best interest that their baby does well, whether they deliver vaginally or by cesarean, that the outcome is good with as minimal intervention as possible. And so we're really just trying to guide people to what's the best route that we think, whether it comes to infection or bleeding or complications, we're just trying to help them steer through that route. Ultimately, the the goal all of us have or should have is healthy mom, healthy baby, right? Those are the most important things. And since nobody always knows the exact you know, magic point, what is the exact right time to recommend a cesarean? Now, sometimes it's pretty obvious that you can get 10 out of 10 obstetricians to agree like, whoa, like 
she needs a cesarean. Okay, but those are pretty extreme situations. And most of the time, different people will handle it slightly differently. And maybe some people are more patient and will have a higher vaginal delivery rate, but maybe those same people will have a slightly higher complication rate from the longer labors. And on the flip side, maybe some people will have the opposite for both. And since the obstetricians can't always agree 100%, but the intentions are unified, meaning the 10 obstetricians and midwives who may disagree on the exact right point to do a cesarean in labor, they all want the same thing and are trying to do the same thing. The problem is that the data is complicated because every person, every baby, every pelvis, every labor, every situation is unique. And there can't just be you know, hard and fast rules in a cookbook that you can use to figure out how to do this. And when I'm speaking to women either during pregnancy or in labor and, and these conversations come up or just friends and family, they ask me about who, you know, what kind of doctor should I pick? It's, it always boils down to trust. You have to find a doctor, obviously who's competent. I mean, anyone who knows their doctor is incompetent isn't going to stay, right? So you have a competent doctor, but it has to be a person that you trust because if you don't trust the person taking care of you, that is a setup for disaster unless everything just goes perfectly fine, in which case you didn't need the person there in the first place. And how to develop that trust takes time. It takes visits, it takes conversations, it takes impressions, it takes you know words, body language, all of these things, asking questions, getting answers. And that is something that I think sometimes gets lost in a system where the doctors don't know the patients and the patients don't know the doctors. There's advantages to it, but there's also a real disadvantage of sometimes a lack of trust. Totally agree. It kind of comes back to kind of models of healthcare again. For most folks, what they really are looking for is a collaborative model of healthcare. I feel like for people walking through the door to labor and delivery, in labor, you know, we're not talking about inductions. There are very few true emergencies. I think like the true emergencies are 1% of the time. I, I feel like it's really not that frequent. I feel like there are some situations that are urgent, but aside from the emergencies where time is really essential, I feel like most people, there's an opportunity to at least have a conversation about what's happening. Hey, I don't like what's happening here. I don't like what I'm seeing. And here's what I'm worried about. And we have these three options. You know, real quickly, here's the pluses and minuses of both of them. That is the collaborative method of healthcare or collaborative model of healthcare of talking people through those different choices, helping people kind of come to, to some peace about even if they have to have a cesarean, this is the reasoning why, and kind of sharing that information with them. And, and that also goes a long ways towards trust. You feel like you're a partner and you feel like you're part of it. And I think that that kind of comes back to some of the fear that people have about labor and delivery. They're hearing stories from other people, you know, where sometimes people do employ more of a paternalistic model of like, you need a C-section now and not give reasons. Hopefully, as people go through labor, they'll ask questions and, you know, hopefully providers will continue to give them different options, realizing there are emergencies and in true emergencies, there sometimes isn't time to really explain. Right. I think a lot of this is ideally set up in advance, meaning for me, patients are always worried. I'm going to have a doctor who I don't know when I'm in labor. For doctors also, it's complicated or stressful to have a woman in labor who I don't know in the same way because I don't know what her personality is like or what her past experiences are like or what her trusts and distrusts are. And all these things are very helpful. So ideally, these things are set up in advance if you have the opportunity to have conversations 
with patients and with doctors during the prenatal time when it's usually more calm and relaxed and you have time to talk about it. Sometimes that's not possible. And if I'm covering labor and delivery and there's a woman who comes in labor and I'm going to be the person taking care of her, I always find it important to, it's sort of that rapid development of trust as, as best as you can. And that, that requires you know going in, sitting, talking. And it's not just about the labor, but who are you? Where are you from? All these types of things that, that give just humans a sense of trust in one another. The, the woman could say, you know, this, he's a nice guy. He's trying to do what's best for me. He's trying to help me. He knows what he's doing. And for me, I get a sense of what are the things she's afraid of? What are the things she's been told? What are the things that she comes into labor with? So I understand sort of what her perspective is. And then if an hour or two later I come in and we talk about, well, I think I want to do A or B or C. And like you said, I can discuss what the options are and what my reasoning is. It's a much more productive conversation if we feel like we know each other to a certain degree and we trust each other to a certain degree. Like I said, sometimes there's just real emergencies, rare, but they happen. And when they do, most people understand, you know, the doctor says like, you know, this is really, really critical. No one, you know, everyone wants their baby to be fine and them to be fine. But most of the time, like you said, it's not like that. And there is opportunity for a real conversation to take place. And that is, it's difficult. And they don't teach you that in medical school and residency. That is not something. And even when they try to teach it, you can't do it until you're actually doing it in real life. It, it takes just experience, time to understand human interaction and conversation, which is the most complicated thing there is. Sometimes thinking about talking to your family member. You're not supposed to take care of family members, but I always think, you know, everybody has been a patient themselves. How would I want my doctor to talk to me? Or how would I want a doctor to talk to my daughter, my wife, my sister, my mother, whoever it is? And if I'm not speaking that way and in that depth and for that amount of time, then, you know, that's on me, right? That's something that I need to do. Um, otherwise, they're going to be left feeling uncomfortable with the situation. And so, again, ideally, that's something you can do over the course of many months. Uh, but sometimes it has to be done on the spot as best as you can. And again, a lot of it is not just the words you say, but it's, you know, looking people in the eye, obviously greeting them with a smile, you know, sitting instead of standing sometimes just, you know, the, these things are really important and uh, how we interact with one another to put people at ease that we're all, we all have the same goal. We're all on the same page. I, I sometimes see women after they deliver when it ended up being a cesarean when they were expecting a vaginal birth. And for most of them, even those that, that were pretty set on having a vaginal birth, they, they come to terms with it and they're okay. And obviously having a healthy baby and number one, they're just focused on the baby. They don't have as much time to think about this, but they, you know, they come to realize, but there's some for whom it's a real point of distress in their life afterwards. They feel either that somehow they failed their baby or they failed themselves or, or the doctors failed them or that there's some thing that they have a lot of regret over that, which is difficult to live with. Have you, have you experienced that as well? I have seen folks who, after they've delivered, are really very distressed about that. And, and maybe that's part of where I'm hoping that we can start to educate people a little bit better. I think the cesarean rates went up, what, in 2003, 2004, they started to really escalate. But I think that they've stayed very constant for the last 15 years or so. And I think that we need to do probably a better job of guiding people to 
realize what their risks are before they go into labor, especially now that at least in our practice, we're seeing a much older patient population. I mean, we're routinely seeing people in their mid forties and I think that they have to have a reasonable expectation. I think they are more accepting of it. I think it's the younger folks, but I do think that people feel like there's almost some birth trauma of having had a cesarean. I think like so many other things where people kind of have loss in their life, they have to treat it in the same way where you know, they, they probably should start looking into counseling. And, you know, I would encourage them to sit down with their docs and also a counselor to see if they can understand it a little bit better. Sometimes I feel like people maybe didn't understand all of the significance of some of the things that happened that led them to have a cesarean. Right. I mean, labor is a pretty stressful time and a lot is going on and women are sleep deprived in labor. And sometimes everything can make sense at that time to them. And then suddenly it doesn't later. And I found that, you know, after they recovered, I'm happy to sit with them in my office and I can, based on the reason, I can either pull up the fetal heart rate tracing, say, you know, these are the concerns we had. This is what was going on. This is why, or just go over her progress in labor and explain sort of what the reasoning was. And I found that for not all, but for many of the women who have had a lot of distress over the fact that they had a cesarean, when given the opportunity to revisit everything that was going on in a more relaxed or a less stressful situation with more time and to ask, they ultimately understand and usually agree. They say, oh, you know, that makes a lot more sense to me now than it did, you know, at three in the morning after not sleeping for three days and which obviously makes a lot of sense. And so I think that for, if someone is feeling somewhat, you know, unsettled by how their delivery went it could be true with the vaginal delivery too. You know, obviously not every vaginal delivery is, you know, is 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 great for women. And there's a lot of some of these people have complications or difficult recoveries or whatever it is. I think it's important to realize that you have an opportunity to talk to your, you know, provider with doctor, midwife, whoever afterwards to go over those events. And it doesn't have to be the next morning. It could be a month later. It could be whenever it is that, that you feel ready to talk about it. And I certainly know that I would be happy to do that. And the people I work with, you know, in our practice would be happy to do that. And many, many other people out there, but because again, it's it's all part of communication and trust. For many of these women, they're going to come back to us for another pregnancy. And if they, certainly if they feel that what we did was the correct thing and they feel that we were acting in their best interests and, you know, helping them, then they're going to be more comfortable the next pregnancy too. And if they don't, they're going to have to all right, find a new doctor. It's it, it just makes it more complicated. I think one of the advantages that we have at Sinai is in the process of labor. I think that many times we're watching tracings and we're worried about a situation, whether it's evolving to worsen or, or better. I think that there's a lot of collaboration amongst providers. There are are laborists that are on the floor. I do see people going to them or to other peers and many times asking for help. I see other groups asking us, but I also see us asking other groups as well. And also us having a redundant system and a backup system where we can ask for help. So I feel like a lot of the decisions are very solid for moving forward with a cesarean or vacuum or forceps or whatever we're we're moving onward that that is an intervention. But I think that I agree with you. Sometimes people can be sleep deprived or, you know, they're they're distracted by other things. And I, I think coming back to people and asking 
for clarification and explanation at a later point in time. And it doesn't even have to be a month later. It can be two months later or three months later. You know, I think sometimes helps people really process. And once they start processing, I think that they can kind of heal or settle and, you know, feel like they were well cared for. Because I do think people are really well cared for. I agree. And I think that's a really important point you made about sometimes getting a second opinion. And sometimes a second opinion is we as doctors want one, meaning sometimes there's a situation which is legitimately complicated or difficult to figure out exactly what the right thing to do is. And frequently we'll ask one of our colleagues, one of our peers, hey, I was thinking A, B, and C, what do you think? And get a fresh set of eyes, so to speak. Frequently, they'll agree. They'll say, yeah, I think your reasoning is sound. And sometimes they'll say, hey, maybe try this or this. And it could be either. But also for the patients themselves in labor, if sometimes, you know, doctors saying, I think we should do something. And she doesn't seem to really agree. I'll say, would you like me to ask somebody else to take a look at the situation? And if he or she disagrees, I'm happy to revisit. And I've been on both ends of that. I've certainly been asked to come in and assess a situation. I remember I'd once had someone who actually knew very well, who was a friend of mine who was in labor and I wasn't taking care of her. I just, you know, she was in labor. Her doctor came to me and said, you know, I, I want to do A and B and that's what I'm recommending, but she really just wants another pin and she wants you to come in now. So I, I hadn't taken care of her the whole pregnancy. And for her, just because she knew me and I said, you know, I went over the heart rate tracing and your labor and I happened to agree with her doctor, the the recommendation and whatever it was. And I said, yeah, I really think it's a good idea. And for her that done, like it just helped settle her that this one other person to agree and to look at it and just gave her that sense of sort of closure on the labor and that she could, you know, agree with the recommendation. It wasn't combative at all. It was just, she needed that in order to feel, to move past it and to be well in that sense. I think that goes to culture. The culture overall is collaborative. And so that's the culture in labor and delivery where you can ask other people for help. I think that's true on many labor and delivery units. There's that shared experience of it's a very frequently fast paced, busy, or sometimes kind of slow, but you have a lot of people who are for long periods of time together and we tend to get along and respect each other. And I think that that's one of the really nice things about our labor floor and others I've been on and that collaborative model between us and patients frequently has to call in other professionals, other doctors and whatever. And that that is an important aspect of this. Liz, plan B, the cesarean in labor, healthy mom, healthy baby. And I really appreciate you coming on talking about this very important topic. And I'm sure it's something that'll come up again in the future. And we hope to have you on Healthful Woman many times moving forward. Thank you, Nadie. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.